X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Thursday, August 27th. Today, back in the day, August 27th, 1789, the French National Assembly issued the Declaration of Rights, one of the foundational documents of the French Revolution. It articulated equality shared between all individuals, the need to protect liberty, property, and freedom of expression. That a nation's power comes from a collective of equal individuals, not from the powerful exerting their will on subjects. The Declaration was prepared by Gilbert de Motier in collaboration with Thomas Jefferson and was influenced by early American documents like the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. The Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen represented an ideal of universal human rights that nations still struggle to live up to. Systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism still prevent everyone from sharing in those same equal rights, but that declaration is viewed as a critical step in bending the arc of history towards justice. And today, back in the day, August 27, 1972, the Grateful Dead played a concert, the first field trip, at the Oregon Country Fair site near Veneta, Oregon. That concert, a benefit for Springfield Creamery, has become legendary to deadheads and is documented in the movie Sunshine Daydream. Veneta, by the way, has been the site of the annual Oregon Country Fair for about five decades now. The nonprofit fair, which happens every summer, except this summer, brings annual attendance of approximately 45,000 people and almost 1,000 craft and food booths. I think my brother's been about 10 times. I spoke there once to register voters. I took my pants off to fit in. I was wearing drawers, but I took, you know, my pants pants off just to say that I was one of the cool kids too. My message was actually that we needed to emit a revolutionary tone not only in the manner of dress, but also in the content of our activism. A few people nodded their heads through the haze. And I put my pants back on. We'll start with the quick six news headlines. Mike Selig from partner station KXRW has a COVID update and an interview with the outgoing director of the Oregon Zoo, Dr. Don, Dr. Don Moore retiring after four and a half decades of zoo and animal service. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. The Portland Trailblazers did not play last night. After the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks protested their game. They stayed in the locker room. Word is they were trying to reach the Wisconsin Attorney General. That set off a series of discussions of boycotts, and that included a walkout by the Blazers and the Lakers. So there was no Game 5 of that series. And we will see if there are games to come. And back here in Portland on the 90th consecutive nights of protests for racial justice, police arrested 25 demonstrators at City Hall. Over 200 demonstrators marched on City Hall. Windows were smashed. Demonstrators spray-painted messages around the rotunda. According to police, some protesters broke inside the building where they destroyed several security cameras. Police arrived, declared an unlawful assembly. They pushed protesters back and formed a line in front of a flower display which, for those who haven't been in downtown lately, spells the word defund. After several arrests and pushing protesters back, demonstrators returned to City Hall moments later. More windows were broken. According to police, one protester sprayed flaming aerosol towards the building. After claiming extreme life safety concerns for the security guards inside City Hall, police declared a riot. More arrests were made, bringing the night's total to 25. That made Tuesday the third consecutive night of more than 20 arrests. City Hall was actually not the site protesters originally planned to target. Earlier in the day, they agreed to march on Donald E. Long Juvenile Detention Center, where 38 children currently reside. Deborah Kafori asked them to consider the kids, many of whom had already experienced trauma. As a result, they decided instead to march on City Hall. 
And another protest news, a 24-hour march from Portland to Salem began last night, led by Marcus Evans and Idris Phillips. It's a response to the violence of recent protests. Their new group is called Aim for Total Equity Revolution, or AFTER. Speaking about the march, Idris said, we are trying to show people there is another way to respond to trauma. And he hopes the march will shift protests to a more peaceful direction. In your daily dose of coronavirus data, 222 new cases and six new deaths. We're now up to 25,571 cases, 433 total deaths. Multnomah, Clackamas, Washington, and Marion County had the most cases. And after much deliberation, the University of Oregon announced mostly online classes this fall. Dorms will remain open to incoming freshmen. Most classwork will be done, though, online. That decision follows their announcement that incoming students would have to pay full price for room and board, even if classes went virtual and empty. University plans to introduce a robust testing, contact tracing, and isolation and quarantine program. Many colleges like PSU had already moved classes online for the fall. U of O had hoped to avoid doing that, but they did in fact go just about all online after citing outbreaks at other universities as a major cause of concern. A Portland restaurant manager who was fired for espousing racist views was later rehired and promoted. Bruce Carey Restaurants owns several high-end bars and restaurants in Portland, including Saucebox. A former server at Saucebox alleged that he was subjected to racist comments from his general manager. Other employees supported those claims. The restaurant group fired the general manager, and one making the complaint continued to work at Saucebox. But that general manager had later been rehired by the restaurant chain, now serving as an assistant to Saucebox's co-owner. Portland police knew that an arrest warrant had been issued for one of Saturday's far-right protesters. August 22nd, the No Marxism in America rally had turned violent. That's when Proud Boys and other far-right protesters clashed with Black Lives Matter demonstrators downtown. Far-right activist Tusitala Tiny Toisi was seen at the event. It was a clear violation of his probation agreement. He had been convicted on assault charges back in 2018. His probation agreement barred him from attending rallies. Tiny Tuisi attended the rally in full view of Portland police. Portland police did notify the county's probation unit that Tuisi was downtown. And according to Erica Pruitt, director of Multnomah County's Department of Community Justice, police feared that arresting Tuisi would further escalate tensions. Around 30 officers were seen at that demonstration. When fighting broke out, they largely stood by. Juan Chavez, director of the Civil Rights Project, said that Tuisi, and I'm quoting, didn't think anything would happen to him, and he was right. And some good news, Oregonians may see some of their unemployment benefits return in a few weeks. In late July, Congress failed to extend the $600 a week unemployment bonus that many have relied on. As a result, the president authorized additional aid through a controversial federal order. It allows states to tap federal emergency funds for a $300 weekly bonus, half the original rate. And earlier this week, Oregon announced that it would seek those new funds. The Oregon Employment Department hopes to get that money to people in a few weeks. But first, it needs to update its aging computer systems, the same computer systems that led to the ousting of not the former, but the former, former head of that department. Since March, Oregon had provided $4 billion in various unemployment benefits. Many recipients are still waiting for their checks as the state struggles to catch up on its paperwork. And that is today's Quick Sick Local Rundown. Here is Mike Selig from Partner Station KXRW with a COVID reality check. This is Mike Seelig with KXRW Radio in Vancouver, and you're listening to the COVID edition of Voices from Our Community. As of this recording, a thousand people a day are dying, and over 180,000 people in total have died from the coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. 
Since early March, experts have said the same three things about how to control the spread of the virus. Wash your hands, stay separated from other people, and wear a mask. But the daily death count kept climbing while too many people kept protesting about having to wear a mask. And it's become clear to me now, we're fighting two pandemics. The first pandemic is the very deadly disease COVID-19. The second pandemic is the contamination of our country by weaponized misinformation. Or to put it bluntly, our country has been poisoned by professional liars. People lie to make a profit, to escape responsibility, or to distract the angry mob from attacking them. But this constant avalanche of lies is like a combat boot on our neck, empowering the spread of the virus and preventing us from effectively fighting back. And it's the single reason that more people have died than would have had we been united and acted fast. But we didn't have a chance because we've been divided as a nation for some time now. And we have a president who has a very strange relationship with the truth. And people remains very low. People die from the flu. And this is very unusual. And it is a little bit different, but in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. Uh, but uh, we have it so well under control. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and... It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. Their new hoax. Their new hoax. Their new hoax. But it wasn't a hoax back in March, and it's not a hoax today. This is a chink in democracy's armor. Plain and simple, it wasn't designed to deal with sociopaths. And now we're learning that bold-faced liars in high public office will be able to fool some of the people all of the time. Are you going to allow the government to tell you you have to wear a mask? On June 20th, Donald Trump held a campaign rally at BOK Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, against the guidance of all credible infectious disease experts. Herman Cain attended the rally. There are pictures of Mr. Cain sitting in a large group of Trump supporters. None of them are wearing a mask. After the rally, dozens of Secret Service agents were ordered to self-quarantine because they were exposed to people with the virus. Herman Cain got on a plane, and according to his staff, he traveled extensively after the rally. It's very likely he continued to refuse to wear a mask, and at some point in his travels, he started shedding the coronavirus. Less than two weeks after the rally, Cain tested positive for COVID. On July 1st, he was admitted to an Atlanta-area hospital. He died in that hospital on July 30th. The story of the death of Herman Cain is a metaphor for what is happening in our country right now. Too many people still refuse to wear a mask. But when those people get the virus, they're expecting the medical community to magically be there for them. The trouble is, the doctors and nurses who've been working in those mask-free states are being overrun with cases. This is a June 25th report from CNN. One of the best ways to fight COVID-19 Wear a mask. 
I think it's incredibly unfortunate that this has become so political. There's no statewide mandate in Florida, where more than 5,000 cases were added Thursday. In the nation's three most populous states, things are going from bad to worse. I don't think history is to look back uh, forgivingly upon the United States and Americans for uh, going down this road. California, Florida and Texas breaking records for new cases in a single day. Texas pausing its reopening to, quote, corral the spread of COVID-19. In the greater Houston area, Texas Medical Center's normal ICU capacity is just over 1,300 beds. They currently have five available. Florida primary care physician Dr. Pratish Gandhi spoke to CNN about the conditions in his hospital. We are exhausted, reusing PPE, doubling our drive-through capacity, doubling our respiratory capacity, and it isn't enough. And now the latest wildfire spread of COVID infections are from young people. This is a July 1st report from CBS. There is a new focus on young people who make up a growing number of infections. Some are partying at beaches and bars like there is no pandemic at all. In Michigan, for example, health officials say 113 COVID-19 cases are now linked to just one reopened bar in Ingham County. Those infected range in age from 18 to 28 years old, the definition of young. I'm not too scared of getting sick. From the West Coast in San Francisco. It's not going to really stop me from like going out to the East Coast in Boston. I just personally don't care. Yeah, why is yeah. that? Uh, I haven't got sick yet. And down south in Atlanta. I'm definitely seeing a lot fewer people wearing masks. Young people are out enjoying the warmer weather. But according to health officials, they might also be spreading and contracting the coronavirus as people pack into parks, beaches, restaurants, bars, and even concerts. Cases are rising in at least 37 states with surges among young people linked to everything from fitness classes to summer fraternity parties. They may be indirectly hurting people by infecting someone who then infects someone who then infects someone who's vulnerable. In Arizona, nearly half of the coronavirus cases are people 20 to 44 years old. Last week, President Trump held a rally in the state where a crowd of around 3,000 people were mostly young and maskless. In Hayes County, Texas, about 30 miles outside of Austin, young adults make up more than half of all cases. In the state of Florida, which is a coronavirus hotspot, the highest number of cases are among people between the ages of 25 and 34 years old. If I get it, um, then you live with your consequences. Boyan Adonosovsky lives in West Palm Beach, Florida. The 25-year-old salesman told us he wears a mask in places where it's required, but he doesn't want coronavirus to stop him from living life. I need something to unwind. Some people like reading, some people like working out. I like, you know, going and seeing other people as well. Now, if, if I had to go out and do that with a face mask, Right. If they required it to wear a face mask, sure, I'll do that. Um, but if they don't require it, I would choose not to. What have you observed over the last few weeks as it pertains to COVID-19 in Florida? The age of cases is what is most remarkable. That has been dropping steadily. Dr. Charles Lockwood is senior vice president of University of South Florida Health. 
He's administered more than 300 coronavirus tests himself, and he is alarmed by the spike among young people. It really is consistent with what we've been observing, which is incredible non-compliance with wearing face masks, social distancing, particularly among young adults and, and teenagers. As a doctor, are you at a point where you still are trying to get through to those people? I think that we need to accept the fact that young folks um, have a different way of looking at, the, at life. The problem is that while you may not die, um, and you may not even know you're sick, you may be killing other people. If my parents were to get sick, I would not be able to live for myself. Sophia Carrion lives with her parents in Los Angeles, and she says she's strict about social distancing and wearing the mask. The 23-year-old has a message to other young people who are not taking the virus as seriously. You know, it's not just about you. I think that's like a big mindset just people have like, oh, if I get it, like I'll be fine. It's just the flu. Maybe, but you don't want to pass it to someone who could be more vulnerable, more susceptible. You know, I was watching an interview yesterday with an ICU doctor here in Miami who said the patients he's treating today are younger and they're sicker. Here's a fact for you from Florida. Two 17-year-olds have died here, and I was just reading the story of one of them. Her name was Carson. She had dealt with cancer as a child. And so we wear a mask for people like her, for our parents, our grandparents. Gail, we do it for our colleague Cindy, who's with us this morning on this live shot, the audio engineer. That report isn't the condemnation of every young person in this country. But here's the bitter irony of the entire mask debate. For every person who has protested about wearing a mask or felt it was just too big a hassle, they have all obeyed the signs in restaurants and worn shoes on their feet without protest. There's got to be a better way to get through to them. The girls are supposed to meet us here any minute. Hey, look, huh, let's get some lunch and surprise them with a picnic. I'll be right with you, fellas, in a minute. Hey, can't you clowns read? The sign on the door says, no shirt, no shoes, no service. I'm trying to run a classy establishment here. For X-Ray FM in Portland and KXRW Radio in Vancouver, I'm Mike Selig, and you've been listening to Voices from Our Community. One day, I hope to hear your voice, too. We get to talk to Dr. Don Moore, director of the Oregon Zoo for 45 years. He tells us about the animals he loves, once he doesn't, think spiders, and what he's learned from his lifelong dedication to animal conservation. Dr. Don, director of the Oregon Zoo, recently announced plans to retire at the end of August. That's really soon from now. Dr. Don has had a 45-year career in zoo management, animal welfare science, wildlife conservation. Thanks for your service. Dr. Don, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Why did you decide to retire? Because 55 years would have been too long? <laughs> Probably. Well, like a lot of us, you know, the COVID pandemic has caused some deep personal reflection. And um, my entire family is um, almost my entire family. Some are here in Portland, but um, most are on the East Coast. My daughters are on the East Coast and I'm not getting any younger. And um, maybe 55 years would have been too long. So, so we're not only losing you, we're not only losing you at the zoo, we're losing you geographically. 
Yeah, um, I'll still be uh, director emeritus for a while, and I'll help the foundation with with fundraising and you know um, interactions with our supporters. How did you get into zoo stuff? How did you decide you wanted to work in animal welfare science? Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, I wouldn't recommend this to any uh, eight to twelve year olds out there, but I was the kid who would show up at school with a pet toad in his pocket. Um, and so I've loved animals as long as I can remember. And, um, and then I went to school for zoology and animal behavior and uh, animal welfare science and cognition were rising sciences. So um, I've managed to have a career, you know, researching deer and bears and elephants. It's been pretty fun. Is there an animal you hate? Be honest for a second. Is there an animal? You, you're supposed to be a friend of all animals. Is there an animal actually that drives you nuts? That you you know just say this is an animal. If we if we didn't have it at the zoo, I'd be fine with it. If people did, if we didn't have to look at posters of it, it'd be fine. In fact, if it shrunk its population, is there any animal that you're not in favor of? Be honest, Doctor Don. Well, there's there's a difference between being nuts, um, <laughs> an animal that drives me nuts and an animal that might scare me. So Fair. an animal that might scare me is um, uh, one of the, you know, venomous spiders of the world. I don't like them. Um, <laughs> and an animal that drives me nuts, but I love them to death, are giant pandas. You know, the National Zoo just announced that they're having, they just had another baby giant panda. But um, trying to breed pandas, giant pandas, to save them from extinction uh, has been <laughs> a little bit of a chore um, but we're doing okay there. So. Why won't pandas have sex, Dr. Don? Uh, <laughs> um, they they will. The boys just have to learn, and so um, I think there have to be a lot of them around. But um, uh, they're, they're big and fat and roly-poly, and that makes it more difficult, I guess. What, how do you feel about mosquitoes? I am in favor of full-on mosquito, wasp, and hornet eradication it is where my environmental sensibilities leave off tell me why i am wrong well you know a lot of our beautiful migratory birds um are are you know small bats that are fascinating to me um and other animals eat mosquitoes um fishermen are interested in mosquitoes because their larval form the wigglers are in the water and those wigglers feed the minnows that feed trout and salmon populations. So um, on the one hand, I'm in favor of mosquitoes. On the other hand, I am not in favor of death by mosquito. Um, they are the one animal on the planet that kills more people than anything else because they transmit so many diseases like malaria. Yeah, I, and, and they make it less fun to camp. Uh, so I, th <laughs> I'd be fine. I would feed the fish. Okay, and I bet you the birds would find gnats to eat. We can talk about that another day. Proudest moment. What are some of the proudest things that you've been a part of during your 45-year zoo management career? Um, wow. Um, working with bears, um, all bears around the world, and introducing middle schoolers to those bears. Um, and I think... You know, these aren't personal accomplishments. Um, it takes an army to actually do conservation and conservation education out there. And I'm really proud of the way that, that Oregon Zoo and other zoos have 
strengthened our partnerships with um, agencies and tribes and um, not-for-profits like the Nature Conservancy. At Oregon Zoo, I'm most proud of our relationship with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which has helped us with um, uh, stationing a biologist in our new education center. And uh, that biologist, Leah Schrote, is able to leverage a whole bunch of other Fish and Wildlife Service biologists to come into the zoo with, you know, and, and be able to see over one and a half million people a year and explain their stories, whether they're helping to save salmon in the Pacific Northwest or bears or, or whatever it is. And so those those partnerships, I think I'm really proud of those. Do you have a favorite animal? Do you have an animal that you are happy to see every single day or that you wish you would have more of other than more pandas? Um, every animal, uh, but any bear and um, elephants as, you know, the biggest land mammal on the planet are favorites of mine and um it's sad to see them uh poached and and kind of driven toward extinction and so that's why we're so passionate about saving them this is maybe if not the perfect segue a, a good segue to something i wrestle with about zoos i was in and zoos i'm a supporter of zoos i'm a big fan of the Oregon Zoo. i think you've done remarkable work i'm so grateful uh, Thanks. I was in. Uh, I was actually in in Lyon, France, and they have a, a little nature this huge park in Lyon, France, and it includes some areas where they actually have some some zoo animals. It also has some cages that are no longer filled, but the cages are still there, and they're little cages, and they're cages that used to have like a bear in them. Yeah, and there and and it's so you can see not just in like old grainy black and white pictures. You can actually walk next to what zoos used to look like, which just looked like horror shows, right? It looked yeah. like it, it was the the size about the ratio of like a travel crate for my dog. Okay, that but this yeah. wasn't a travel crate. This was the cage that that bear would have to stay in. Uh, that lion, that tiger would have to stay in a little bigger than a travel crate to to be sure. Uh, but not nothing like habitat. How do you think? And obviously, zoos have gone a long way since you know 100 years ago. There is still, though, this question that for animal lovers, which you so obviously are, this question of at what point do we create uh, do we create habitat that is for human beings to be able to walk around and see the animals, which has the benefit of feeding money into a system that actually allows for there to be animal scientists with jobs to advocate against poaching, etc. And at what level do we say, yeah, but it's still a little weird if there are folks who are making dough off of the, the sort of, the, the hey, look at that of animals and then overlaying that with the experience of the animal. How do you sort of balance that in your own mind? How do you uh, try to offer sort of the moral North Star of how we should be thinking about animal care and even zoos in the next hundred years? Yeah, that is such a great question that we've wrestled with, you know, ethically and morally. Um, I started in one of those horrible zoos and I was on my way to, to vet school and fell in love with the, the elephant at that zoo and stayed around to renovate it so that the elephants had more space and it became an elephant breeding center so i'm trying to weigh you know the the risk of endangered species going extinct 
and having them in national parks where they're not so protected versus having them in zoos, giant pandas, elephants, uh, condors, where we can breed them, protect them, and, and do public education. Um, and so I've worked through my career to, to make those links between the modern zoos and the, the national parks because everybody who's urban can't necessarily get into the national parks like you're talking about. Um, you know, I think of Yellowstone. Sure, we've got a huge national park there, but um, say brown bears get into trouble in Yellowstone, and they have they have two choices: they they can uh, humanely kill those brown bears and take them completely out of the system, or they can place them um, in zoos, which is what we've been doing for for years to educate the public that might go to Yellowstone about the importance of brown bears. Right. So, um, so we're we're a sanctuary for um, those orphaned animals, those those um, problem animals from the wild, and we can have those animals help as ambassadors for their wild cousins to teach people about those animals. And then we're also home to um, endangered species like giant pandas at the National Zoo or like Asian elephants at Oregon Zoo, like condors. We've got 40 condors. You can only see three of them at Oregon Zoo. The other ones are, you know, off-site in Clackamas County, and we've released over 60 into nature, into national parks. We've released over 12,000 butterflies into, you know, state parks and nature conservancy lands in Oregon, and you never even get to see the butterflies. Um, We can only talk about our work, you know, so... Um, so it's it's an ethical dilemma that we wrestle with, and that's why I've focused on on animal welfare for my career um, to make sure that the animals in my care have the best possible um, care and welfare throughout their lives. I, I have a question. As you, as you look back over your long experience, and, and particularly with the, the Portland Zoo. Governance is always a question for an operation like a zoo. Do you have, do you have any thoughts about governance, about how well it works? If if you were if you were able to design the perfect system, would it be the one we have, or if not, what would it be? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I was on the Zoo Association Accreditation Commission for ten years, and I've looked at all 240 accredited zoos and aquariums and their governance systems and different things work in different places so metro regional government is the parent organization here um you know for the national zoo smithsonian is the parent organization 19 museums and one zoo um and they're about 50 percent of our accredited members are are owned and operated by a government, and the other 50% are private. And I can tell you that both work, and and sometimes depending on, you know, how the region feels about the zoo, say the Detroit Zoo, privatization has been the best thing for that zoo, you know, over time. Um, and for others, staying with the government has been the best thing over time. So, sorry, uh, I, I have... Um, a very very malleable opinion on that one <laughs> because I've seen how all of them work and um, they can all work very well because all of those dues remain accredited. Well, I got to ask this question. Everybody, it's everybody's asked, wondering about your views on it. Did you watch Tiger King? 
You really had to ask that question. <laughs> yes. I got up to, I think it was episode four, and I just couldn't watch anymore. Um, you know, I talked about accredited zoos before. I hate roadside menageries, and he operates a roadside menagerie, even though in the show he claimed he was accredited. We can't figure out who he was accredited by, but it wasn't the Zoo Association because our standards are very much higher than than that. But, um, yeah, I forced myself to watch some, and then I couldn't watch it anymore. Dr. Don, not to be confused of anybody's animal king, we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for spending this time. Dad, was there anything that you wanted to... Uh, I'm so grateful that he was willing to spend the morning with us, and I'm so grateful for all that he's done for our community. Don Moore, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a great and safe day out there. Take care. Thanks to Mike and Don for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. If you want to sponsor The Local and have your sponsorship said on The Local, go ahead and email The Local at thelocal at xray.fm. And thank you, Democracy. X-Ray.